Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamara Zanatti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, we're very excited today. We're going to be talking about the movie Contact and Enneagram Type 5 with our special guest, Russ Hudson. We're here also with Tamara and Maria Jose, as always. Really thrilled to have Russ with us. Uh, we're going to talk about Contact, and then we're going to talk some about some other stuff, too. So uh, this will probably be a two-part episode. So we're really looking forward to this. Russ, welcome. Thank you, Mario. Great to be here. Looking forward to this. All right. Tamara, Maria, Jose, how are you guys doing today? Great. Looking forward to this session with our special guest. Sessions, really, because we're having two. Yeah, I'm very excited as well. I mean, to to have the four of us, uh, having Russ with us is uh, creating completely different dynamics. So I love that. (laughs) I got bored uh, of the three of us guys. So (laughs) (laughs) And no pressure, right? That's a good good advertisement for the podcast. uh, One of the hosts grew bored. Um, But but you'll love it as a listener. All right. So, um, so Russ Hudson needs no introduction. If you're listening to this podcast, you're familiar with the Enneagram. And if you're familiar with the Enneagram, you're familiar with Russ. Uh, Russ is the major teachers of the Enneagram. He is a a teacher, uh, certainly of mine and also Maria Hazes and Tamers. We've known Russ. I've known Russ since, uh, oh boy, a whole long time ago. Uh, I guess mid nineties and been very, very influential on the whole Enneagram world, but on our understanding of the system in particular. Russ, um, before we get going too much, uh, since you are our guest, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, probably the easiest place these days is my website, which is very easy to remember, www.russhudson.com. R-U-S-S-H-U-D-S-O-N. Great. So I haven't been to your website. You, I, I was there when you uh, posted it, but I'm sure there are a lot of great resources there. And if you ever have the opportunity to uh, sit in with Russ in one of his trainings, please take the opportunity. Well worth your time. So Russ, we've uh, we've taught together before. Yep. We've done various things and we both have a love of movies. Yes. And Maria Jose, that made me think of our time together in Santiago all those years ago. Uh, how about sharing that story with us? The story when we were eating uh, king crab or the Well, movies? there was that one, yes. That was, that was a very fond uh, afternoon. But t- 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 tell, tell us the movie Yeah, so story. we were going to Valparaiso, and I was driving, and I was so excited. I, it was, I think, 2012. It was the um, Latin American Conference in Santiago. And I got to drive Mario and Ross to Valparaiso, really nice city in the coast. Beautiful. And I was just, I couldn't wait to hear all these pearls of wisdom coming from these two kind of major teachers. (laughs) 
when I suddenly realized that all they talked about was movies. Now, not any movies, but zombie movies. <laughs> so, so I was kind of disappointed. But over the years, I've come to cherish those memories and enjoy every time I see Russ and, and Mario talking about the zombie movies and Tom Condon, as I mentioned the other day, who also loves these kind of movies. So I've always wondered wondered what, what is it about zombie movies that made them love you so much? <laughs> Um, well, go ahead, Russ. I, I don't know. I think when when Mari and I were talking about it, we were talking about, A, they're fun, but B, yes. they're always about something. And I, I just noticed that through the years, zombie movies and more broadly, movies of horror or sh shock tend to be about the shadow issues of the society at the time. And so it, it's fun to sort of try and figure out what is it about this movie of an absurd situation that's actually getting under people's skin. It's not just the blood and stuff, you know, it, these are about, Although that's that fun. is, yeah, that's yeah. fun. That's crazy. You know, look, head, head comes off. Look at that. But yeah. the, but more to the point, they're, they're always about something that's eating us collectively. You know, I use the example, you know, in the United States, uh, in the, the knots in the last decade, there were a lot of movies about torture in horror films. And that wasn't around before exactly like that. But what right. maybe were Americans subconsciously upset about at the time? What were we doing to prisoners in various parts of the world? Hmm. So it, there's always a really interesting thread to these things, a, a mythological element to them that is there, not in all of these movies, of course. Some of them are just dumb and somebody chasing someone around with a weapon or something. But many of the good ones are actually about something more than what they appear. I just watched, rewatched the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Oh, wow. Which is about zombies gathering at the mall. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, right? And the people hide, running from the zombies yeah. go to the, you know, hide at the mall and the zombies trying to get in. And there's just something <laughs> in the nature of these mindless zombies that compels them to descend on the shopping mall. Right? Yes. Um, and, and, and funny thing, you don't even have to be in the movie to go to the mall and see zombies in those days. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and you know and to the point of the you know the, the the philosophical connotations of this right I mean there's in philosophy there is the zombie problem right yeah. so you know if you take consciousness out of an individual right what is the difference okay what is the difference between us and a zombie okay it's a it's a question that has haunted philosophers right and also there's this element of you know there's always in every zombie movie somebody you love or the main hero loves becomes a zombie and they have to face the choice of do i kill this person and put them out of their misery of being a mindless zombie or you know and so forth so there's a lot deeper things going on in zombie movies yeah i mean maria Jose, i mean you are getting all of these uh, pearls of wisdom but you are not noticing <laughs> them i mean lots of philosophical <laughs> deep discussion <laughs> that you missed because she thinks we're just full of crap that's the thing she, she, she probably does it's yeah. a, it's a really Wise way to rationalize this. <laughs> you like some people. It's very good. Very good. No, I, I think from a certain point of view, uh, you could look out at the world and feel like you're watching a zombie movie. 
in yes. the sense that the whole original idea behind the Enneagram was that we would wake up to what has got us hypnotized, what's got us in a trance, what makes us devour and spoil and destroy the planet out of our unconscious consumerism, for example, our voraciousness. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the zombies are us. And how do you survive in a world full of zombies? How do you stay awake when every if you fall asleep, someone might bite you and turn you into a zombie? You know, so you know it's it's a little closer to what we're doing than we might like to think sometimes. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I, bu- I right. buy that. I buy yeah. that. <laughs> I, I oh, also good. just have to. Uh, I also just have to point out, Russ. I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of the Dawn of the Dead, as they're playing the credits, yeah. they used the Jim Carroll band "People Who Died" oh, yeah. as the closing song, oh, which yeah. is just just watching the end credits are worth sitting through the movie, if, even if you're not a, a zombie movie fan. Now, I'm also <laughs> going to point out, Maria Jose, that that whole conversation in Santiago actually started out with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yes, because I was trying to understand how anybody could put mayonnaise on French fries, and so that started a whole John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson. And you still don't on. get it, right? I, I still don't get it. Yes, well, it's, I still it have work to do. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm more with you there, Maria Jose. I I am not. I cannot stand ketchup on my yeah. French fries. I just don't like it. I go with mayo or nothing. <laughs> I I lived in Europe, so there you go. (laughs) Okay, so now that we got our culinary idiosyncrasies out of the way and our uh, zombie movie rationale, um, the movie we're going to talk about is Contact Mm -hmm. with uh, Jodie Foster and uh, Matthew McConaughey's hair uh, as the leading <laughs> actors in the movie. Um, uh, about You're just envious. <laughs> I am so envious. You know, what human being has hair like that? My goodness. And uh, so it was released in 1997, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Uh, had a very interesting background. I was doing a little research on the movie. Actually, the idea came from Carl Sagan, right. a uh, real hero of ours, the um, the science popularizer and scientist, uh, who I think passed away when this movie was being made. He died fairly young. It started with a treatment that he wrote, and uh, at the end, it is dedicated to him. And you can see his traces in the movie, for sure, his influences. But I also think there were some things in there he might have been a little frustrated with. But that's another story. But they did do a good job on the science, I think. Mm. So, good movie. General reactions to the movies, guys. Oh, no, I'll tell you what. Let me summarize it real quick first, okay? So, Jodie Foster plays a young woman, starts off as a girl, then becomes a woman uh, through the course of the movie, who is a scientist on the search for extraterrestrial life. Same. Um SETI, yes. Uh, Her passion for this started young. She was into ham radios when she was a child, Uh, had a very good relationship with her father, who dies when she is young. And a lot of the movie is influenced by that relationship. Okay, There's certainly father-daughter themes throughout this movie that are significant. So she um, is a brilliant scientist and dedicates her career to this search, much to the uh, chagrin of her boss, who thinks she's wasting her time on a backwater effort. But lo and behold, they do discover a signal coming from people not of this world. And that sets off a whole uh, attempt to understand the signal. 
and then to make contact with the extraterrestrials. Uh, so there's a lot more that happens that we'll talk about, but the word contact works on a lot of levels in this movie. And we think that, and, and the idea of doing this for the Type 5 was Russ's suggestion. Uh, Russ, tell me about the, the title and the uh, significance of it. Sure. You know, the, it's it's really a clever title, as you're saying, and it, I'm pretty sure it was Carl Sagan who chose that mm-hmm. title and because he had a book that came out also with the same title. I'm not yeah. sure whether the book was made from the movie script or vice versa, but anyway. Yeah, so what happened, just so you know, he's, they started it as a movie treatment, couldn't get it made, he turned it into a book, then it became a movie. Ah, there we go. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, you know, there is the element of this young woman who is, in our view, a very well-drawn Enneagram 5, who is trying to make contact with some kind of source of knowledge, wisdom, to have the big answers. But I think the film deals very much with what I see as the one of the major challenges for point five, which is that real knowing, not in the sense of just remembering something, but really knowing something, entails the sense of contact. It's about the difference between the Greek notion of gnosis and just information. And the five is always struggling to accumulate more and more information in the idea that eventually that will lead to wisdom or knowing or knowledge. But knowledge entails a sort of contact with our humanity, with our experience. Yet the the whole psychological pattern of five is, is depicted in the film is a contraction away from contact and avoidance of contact. The feeling like if I get into contact, I'll lose myself. But in so doing, we start to disconnect from some of the very important ingredients we need to actually come to knowing and real understanding. So it's a journey toward embracing a more total humanity. Now, I would say, I'm sure Mario would agree, some aspects of the film do this in a sort of ham-fisted way, kind of overstating it so that the folks back home will get it. But thematically, it's right. Thematically, it's about trying to bring together the elements in us that have been split off from each other. And in language of psychology, deals a lot with what psychologists call schizoid detachment. We aren't the only ones to have that. (laughs) All types can have elements of schizoid detachment, to be sure. But fives are kind of the poster children of this particular psychological defense, which is not dissociation. It's not checking out. Fives are generally not checked out, but they're detached. They're distant. There's a way of not wanting to be touched by my experience in a certain way. And that is very much a theme in the film. And Jodie Foster's character going on a journey to find a reconnection with herself, contact with herself, a trust in reality again, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So we tend to like to um, uh, cover the sort of key ideas, sort of the traditional descriptors of the five there. And then we talk about how we usually talk about the five in in terms of strategy. I'm going to take that second part first, and then I'll ask you to touch on sort of the classic notions of the five. But we refer to the five as somebody whose preferred strategy is striving to feel detached. 
right? And, you know, and we always point out that it's not that fives don't have emotions. It's not that fives, you know, can't connect and love people and be in relationships and all of that. But there is this uh, safety felt in creating a buffer between themselves and the messiness of emotional life many times, right? We also like to point out that these strategies can always be acted out in either an adaptive way or a maladaptive way. You know, the ability to detach is an important one, right? Because we do need to be able to step back from our emotions. Uh, We just don't want to be stuck in this pattern of doing it pathologically or in a habitual way that causes us more suffering than it does um, benefit. Tell us, Russ, about kind of the the classical vice virtue and fixation of the five, if you would. Given by Oscar Chazo, the passion associated with point five is avarice. Uh, Sometimes confused, people use other words that I find muddy the waters with gluttony, the passion of the seven. Uh, Acquisition is gluttony. Withholding is avarice. They're not the same thing. Right. And people don't always understand that distinction. Now, when this material was being concocted, it was being concocted by monks and nuns in the deserts of Egypt some, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. So the idea that when we think of avarice now, we tend to think about greed. We tend to think about withholding money, particularly, accumulating wealth. And I suppose that could be part of it. But oddly, most of the fives I've known, even the very wealthy ones, don't care about their wealth. It's, it's, you know, I would suggest that uh, some of the biggest fives that I know are very humble in terms of the houses they live in, what they do with their money. It's Warren Buffett's an example. Warren Buffett, great example. There, there there are others we could uh, we could think of, but yes. I see avarice as something, the idea of the passions was developed by people who were noticing obsessive thought patterns and emotional reactions that troubled them when they were trying to meditate. It's a withholding of the self. And you see that very much in the film. It's a withholding of emotional expression. It's a withholding of my heart, really. Uh, The passions are always in some sense about our emotions. And so this contracted withholding, protecting myself by detaching is really what we're talking about here. And A, doing that feels like a way to protect my heart because fives underneath that feel very fragile often. If you take the trouble to really explore with them, they feel very overwhelmed and fragile, too sensitive in a sense. And so this contraction is feels like the only way I can be safe. So it serves the function of safety. But the other thing is that fives get overwhelmed by other people's thoughts, opinions, and so forth. So they're, from a very young age, there's an imprint that I need to get away to find my own thoughts. I need to detach in order to understand something. And so as fives mature, that pattern keeps going, but they, they never quite understand that that strategy, although it worked well enough when I was a little kid, actually diminishes or attenuates my capacity to understand things. Fortunately, you know, knowledge comes through to us anyway, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it makes it harder and slower. The the other thing was uh, non-attachment. Do you want me to talk about that? Yeah, talk about the virtue yeah. related to point five. Well, this is very interesting because often the psychological strategy is very close 
to a real human attitude or orientation that's helpful and necessary. Another, to put it the way you were just putting it, the maladaptive strategy looks an awful lot like the adaptive strategy. And, Mm -hmm. and it's a real journey to sort of sense from the inside, what's the difference? Right. So, you know, the maladaptive strategy, detachment is, is a kind of unconscious rejection. It's setting up a wall like the old Pink Floyd album where, you know, you guys are over there and doing all your craziness and I'm over here. Thank you very much. And but it's also a wall interiorly against my sensate experience and my emotional experience. And the more difficult of a childhood I had as a five, the more traumatized I was, the more I want that wall there. I I notice what's going on but I don't want to feel it. Right. So non-attachment, though, is a different thing. When we get really grounded in our experience, when we become more hmm, relaxed into our natural humanity, which is no small matter, there is a natural way in which we can notice our experiences without being swept away by them. We can notice our emotions without being completely identified and lost in them. You can notice, wow, I feel sad today without filling your head with stories about your sadness, for example. You can notice that you're angry without turning into a maniac. And this, in a certain way, you could almost say that the aim of the Enneagram is to help us develop the part of us that is not a reaction machine. And so non-attachment is a response, an intelligent response that usually has an element of kindness in it because it also has the understanding of what Buddhists call, and Buddhists are big on non-attachment, what they would call impermanence. Like hard to be mean to everybody when you realize we're all a goner. Right. And so it comes from a seeing the truth as opposed to a kind of reaction of rejection and and distancing. Great. Thanks. Thanks for those insights and that great explanation. There's, uh, there's this connection between compassion and non-attachment that's so critical. And I really don't think you can have one without the other most of the time. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't know if you've ever seen the Joan Halifax TED Talk where uh, she talks about, basically when you watch it, she's talking about the connecting, the interconnectedness of points eight, five, eight, five, and two. Right. Uh, in order to be truly compassionate, you need to have detachment that the non-attachment that you're talking about, but you also need strength. That's right. And, yeah. And she talks about having a strong back and a soft front. So it's a great description of what you're talking about there. Good. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations, as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team and awareness to action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. 
Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. So before we move on, I think that we haven't mentioned the connecting points, which we usually do. In in yeah. the in the four point five, the connecting points are eight and seven, and when five goes to seven to to first to eight, it's the neglected strategy as we call it, and it's kind of like avoided because I distorted and striving to feel powerful feels truly overwhelming. Talking about what you were saying before, Ross, uh, that's kind of the opposite of what I want to feel. I don't want to feel overwhelmed by this power. But you could see in the movie that how she goes to eight, how she uses that strategy. Not in she's the not most, shy. Yeah, she's not shy, but it's also she's not that effective. Or, right. She is, but, but it's kind of a bit, she could be more... Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's almost like she's wearing somebody else's clothes yes. when she's going to eat yeah. in some way, which often happens to us at these. Yes, yes. that's yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah there's a, and, there's a difference for me between unconscious aggression, right, and empowerment, right. right. So eight is really about for me partially at least. That's the discrimination. What is it to be sure. empowered? What is it to be activated where you're right. you're countering some kind of stupidity or wrong and with point seven uh which is the support strategy which we use as well in adaptive and maladaptive ways you could see how she was so excited about these things there was seven all over and (laughs) and she was uh this information blizzard when there was something that was she felt passionate about so i think that you can see both connecting points in the movie yeah, I'd say that that figuring out both of those strategies is so important for the journey of five. Uh, and you see both, as you're just saying, Maria Jose, it, in the film, it, it does deal with that very well. I would just say, you know, I when, when I look back at myself as a youngster, I was so five-ish. I, I would even suggest that had somebody encountered me nowadays as I was as a child or a, a young adult, you would have definitely placed me in the spectrum. I didn't like textures. My food had to be a certain way. Everything overwhelmed me. I had next to no social skills. I definitely was such a card-carrying obvious vibe. But it was actually through the Gurdjieff work, which was very eight and very much demanding for me to show up and do difficult things and take on challenges and do physical labor and develop myself in another way. I really, as many limitations as I saw in some of the attitudes there, that was the perfect ingredient for me to to heal or transform in my nervous system some of what I was trapped in. So I, I kind of think these inner lines, some people say they don't count. I don't understand that. I think they're so important. Yeah, I, we're in complete agreement yeah. with you there. We, we do think there's real utility in thinking about the connecting points. For people of other types, uh, sometimes it's not easy to understand the experience of a five. And I remember yeah. us once uh, we had a dinner in my house and you yes. gave me this, uh, this uh, picture to understand that. Uh, do, you, do you remember that? or uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember the picture, but I remember being yeah. at your house and having lovely yeah. conversations and meeting your, yeah, the rest it, of your it family. It was really amazing because it made me understand somehow, understand the experience and be compassionate with when fives try to protect themselves from the overwhelming emotions and whatever. You told me somehow like, 
it feels like you have multiple words collapsing together into one dimension. So you see the street and the house at the same time, different dimension. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and it's overwhelming. Yeah. And and you you can it's like you have a radio on, but it isn't zeroed into one channel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're getting a lot of radio signals at the same time. So then you want to contract. Yeah, and, and I felt that Go in back. some of the scenes of the movie where Judy Foster would be like running away from situations where there are lots of people or intense emotions like after having sex with uh, uh, Joss and it's like like being overwhelmed and wanting really to have like safe place protect herself from this overwhelm. So Tamar, give me a reaction to the movie. I watched it before and I I, I, I always loved it every time I watched it. And I think, you know, this kind of movies where you see the transformation of the type at certain point of time, these are the movies that I like. I mean, where you see uh, uh, side of the type and then at certain point of time, uh, a certain event happens and transformation happens. So after the um, uh, the machine, she was in the machine and uh, she was there and he had, she had this experience. She came back as a completely different person, which is like a kind of right. evolving into a real, real life, a real five, uh, having the virtue of the non-attachment and embracing both worlds of emotions, connecting, yeah. as well as uh, making use of the mind and uh, intellectualizing things. So, so th that was really amazing for me. Unlike, say, the Big Lebowski, where the character yeah. does yeah. not change a, a, <laughs> yeah. a bit uh, from yeah. beginning to yeah. end, as, as we he, talked about with the definitely yes, abides. Exactly. Yeah. The dude abides, yes, for all of eternity. <laughs> all right, good. Uh, Maria Jose, how about you? Uh, what was your general reaction to the movie? I liked it, and I was wondering why you were um, making those comments about the, the movie being not, I mean, not completely kind of loving it, but I think I'm not so attached to the US-centric uh, <laughs> narrative of the movie. It doesn't matter to me that much. Uh, so I took the movie the movie for what it was, not with those subtle messages. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed to see how five-ish it was, not just the, detach well, the detachment, but I enjoyed the uh, skeptic kind of mindset of everything right so uh, even the president was like trying to stay i mean go by the facts and so it's i i enjoyed seeing that but I, and i enjoyed what tamar said that her ability to integrate things but not necessarily to turn away from what she originally believed it was more of an integration than a complete change and I enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, and, and on the U.S. centric uh, narrative, uh, Maria Z, I think they did well. Where I mean, she, she was presenting always that she's criticizing this U.S. Uh, kind of uh, so so it's it it presented the U.S. centric views and the criticism to that as well. So I think they did well on that. <laughs> I didn't notice any of that stuff. I, I don't know why, but I, I mean, no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Russ, uh, what was your general reaction to the movie? Yeah, I, I saw it when it first came out and a couple times many years ago, but I just watched it again uh, in preparation for our, our gathering here. And, you know, it, it holds up pretty well. I, I was yeah. pleasantly surprised. I thought 
the dealing with her journey particularly was done very beautifully, honoring what was noble and real about her, but also being real about her limitations and where she was stuck. <clears throat> and I agree with what you said, Maria Jose. It, it really was to me not about her going from this to this. It was about an integration where that beautiful discernment and rational rigor that she had was not lost by her experience, but integrated into a larger and more compassionate view of herself and humanity in the universe. What it really triggers for me for the five is as long as our intellect is being used, no matter how sharp our rationality, if it's still in service of defending a sense of self, it will be a blunt and ineffective instrument in terms of its ultimate purpose. When she is in the cosmic realm of wherever the heck she flies off to, and she says, I had no idea. Yes. Accurate, so true. There are realms of the human experience that she, what can you say? What is what Jung called the numinous, right? Mm -hmm. She's a numinous experience and comes back. And now there's a humility as and a compassion as well as her rapier intellect. And she, you get the feeling she's going to go on and have an amazing life. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that very thing uh, in the second half of our conversation today, because I think it's um, it's such an important point for people who are interested in the Enneagram, people who are doing work on themselves, and something that really needs to be discussed more in these circles. So uh, there's certainly some things we want to come back to there. Uh, for me, uh, I was actually kind of surprised when I was uh, looking at the, you know, doing a little bit of research and saw that the aggregate Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie was only 66%, meaning that it wasn't, you know, it's a, a lot of the movies we've had have been in the 90s and 80s uh, as far as positive reviews against negative. So it was, it was a very popular movie. It made $190 million at the box office. But and that was nineteen ninety seven dollars, so it's real money. But it wasn't as popular with the critics as uh, I thought it would have been based on it. I think it holds up very well also. Uh, it's certainly a movie of its time, especially with the Matthew McConaughey um, character. I was trying to think of, okay, nineteen ninety seven there had to be somebody he was based on, you know, I mean, uh, because there were so many of those sort of Oprah you know, Eckhart Tolle, you know, kind of characters around at that time, but I couldn't get exactly the right, you know, comparison. So we could uh, guess Rob Lowe. <laughs> well, yeah, Rob Lowe is easy. Yeah, Rob Lowe is a uh, a very thinly veiled uh, Ralph Reed, who is a despicable uh, character from my view. Yeah, so there were, and certainly Bill Clinton uh, made a good stand in for Bill Clinton. So that was one of the interesting things about this movie is that there were a lot of real life, you know, first of all, the president, but also newscasters. Uh, Larry King made uh, an appearance as well as a number of other people. Bernard Shaw it was nice to see from CNN in the 90s. Um, so um, and there was a lot of criticism of the movie for including live people in that regard. Let's see. The he went on other... to do. He also did that in Forrest Gump. Robert Zemeckis, same director. Right. Yes, same, yes. Same kind of method. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing for me that I thought really held up were the special effects, yeah. given the age of the movie, oh, yeah. right? It was, it was 24 years ago. But I was impressed at how well done 
the special effects were, especially that open open scene, yes. opening scene, right, where it zooms away from the Earth and you know goes throughout the whole universe before ending up back in her as a reflection in her eye. The special effects people and uh, the post production folks would watch 2001: Space Odyssey. Uh, to get themselves in the right mindset. And there were certainly allusions to 2001 throughout the movie that uh, maybe we can touch on. Uh, go ahead, Maria. Zing. I think it, w- I, it was easier to believe all those special effects than the romance between Ellie and, I mean, <laughs> that, that couple. I mean, just in real life, that would never happen, I think. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, um, Palmer Juss, I mean, you know, boy, just the name makes me want to smack the guy, right? I mean, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and he plays this, uh, how did he describe himself? A a cleric without the cloth or something like that. It's like a reverend. They call him a reverend without the cloth, yeah. Yes, and uh, so he plays a kind of hybrid spiritual New Age sort of advisor to important people, including the president, and uh, with this mixture of, you know, sort of light evangelical Christianism, sort of, or eh, probably not even evangelical, but mixed with a lot of New Agey kind of stuff. I don't know, Russ, how would you describe Palmer Jossum? Yeah, I... I, I I saw him as sort of representing the spirituality of the day, for sure. Yes. But also the spiritual search, certainly in American culture, but in other parts of the world, too, that Mm -hmm. I've encountered, why people start getting interested in the Enneagram, is trying to find a more embracing vision of of spirituality than traditional religion. He wasn't ready to sort of jettison traditional religion altogether. Right. He was using it as a foundation, but he was trying to represent a more humane version of it, thus his popularity and so forth. And so I think he was supposed to, I'm not sure it always worked so well in the film, but I think he was supposed to represent a parallel kind of sincere search like he wasn't just buying into all the old religious stuff. He he was using it as a, a to search for what was important to him in a very parallel way to what Jodie Foster's character, Ellie, was doing. Yes. She wasn't just accepting her boss's view of of science as here's here's our little mechanical box and that's all there is to reality. She had a sense there was something more. And so there was something about them as a parallelism in this human search, you might say. Yes. And I am probably being unfairly tough on Palmer Joss. And, and it probably has to do with my jealousy over the hair. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and Matthew McConaughey's good looks. I mean, you know, how can you not hate that guy? And um, Well, he had so, to be charming enough to win over Ellie. So there's that. Yeah, there is that. And she was a tough audience, right? Yeah. So, you know, and so, but I agree that the, the romance was a bit forced uh, between the two of them. And, you know, I, I don't think that that's Jodie Foster's strength as an actress, as talented an actress as she is. She's not a uh, necessarily a romantic leading lady for probably a variety of reasons. You know, so yeah, a l- little tough to see that. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, 
including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So it starts off, I'll kind of go back here. The opening scene, like we said, starts with this um, pulling back from the earth, ends up with her uh, on a ham radio, making contact with people and becoming immersed with that. Go ahead, Rose. So could you listen what was being said? Because I had subtitles. So uh, there was a lot of things said, and it was the history backwards. Yeah. Yes. It was yes. radio broadcasts. Yes. It was showing, it was setting you up for the movie because the radio broadcast traveling at the speed of light is going out into space. So as you're going mm. further out into space, you're going back in time. And so yes. you, it's showing, you know, the Einsteinian principle here and why it takes a while for those radio messages to get out into the cosmos. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And most people yes, wouldn't that- know that. Yes. And it does set up an interesting sort of dynamic when they do make contact, uh, because the message that gets sent back just happens (laughs) to be Adolf Hitler, which was the first, you know, broadcast that made it that far out into space. So young Ellie has, uh, you know, very close relationship with her father. She never knew her mother. Her father dies when she is young. Uh, her father was very influential on her, talked to her about space. And there was a line he used there because she said, do you think there are people out out there in space and he said well if there's not it's an awfully big waste of space uh, which is a line that comes back and uh, so after her father dies there's an interesting conversation between her and the family priest i, I guess uh, at, at the uh, funeral anybody remember what the priest said to her and what her response was he was you know she was distraught and devastated by the death of her father and the priest said you know what a lot of people in traditional religion would say there's things that happen and we don't know why it's just God's will. And you can see her just shutting down around that. Like (laughs) if this is what God does, I'm not interested. It's kind of her inner decision. Yes. Yeah. And, and her reaction was, I should have kept the medicine closer. Yes. Because he apparently had a heart condition and she felt she could have saved him had she had the medicine closer, which is by the way, the shadow of her eight Mm-hmm. I should have handled this. I should have been yes. in control. I should have known what to do. Yes. yes. Well, at the, at the same time, For also a, is like pushing away this non-understanding space and coming up with an analysis and rationale for why this this happened. So this is her way of dealing with yes. the situation. Yes. 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 So we next see her. She is in Puerto Rico at a, uh, I tried, Maria Jose. You did the same. I mean, you were just as good as they were in the movie, <laughs> trying to speak Spanish. Which so is that's not fine. very good as we're saying. Yeah, but, okay. So um, 
So uh, she is at a telescope where, where they are. Um, it's a radio telescope, actually. So they are listening for sounds rather than looking at images and uh, searching for extraterrestrial life. It is here where she meets Palmer Joss. They have a, a little affair and he gives her interesting. He's eating a box of Cracker Jack and uh, he offers her the prize that is in the box of candy. And it's a compass. And that compass comes to be a symbol of integrity and moral direction throughout the movie. So it's uh, it kind of plays through. Uh, so uh, talk, talk more. Any other comments? We've talked a little bit about the relationship between the two of them. To me, to me, what was interesting was when he leaves, or she leaves. Actually, she has to go <laughs> because it's her time. He says how can I reach you? And I don't think he knew what he was getting into (laughs) because he wanted a phone number (laughs) and and didn't know how hard it would be to reach her. I mean, yeah, Yeah, she was triggered. She became too vulnerable. Yes. She actually kind of liked the guy and, and, and like her detachment felt threatened. So she reestablished her distance or walls and so forth and did not, he gave her his number, but she leaves it yeah. in Puerto Rico when she leaves. Yes. The other thing yes. I think about that whole Puerto Rico section it establishes very early her utter disrespect and disregard for authority. Her yes. view that people, just because they have money and power, doesn't mean they're intelligent and they're most likely stupid because yes. they put their life into this. Right. So she doesn't have a lot of respect just because somebody has a title or a position and and she is willing to joust with them. Her boss is introduced at that point. Drummond. Yes. uh, Yes. Played by the great Tom Skerritt. Yes. Who comes over uh, probably in Enneagram three, I would guess. He he felt three ish to me. Probably in Enneagram three, who is also interested in science, but he's way, way, way more pragmatic than she is. <laughs> more politic. Yes. And, and he understands politics yes, and she doesn't yes. care about politics. Yes. And and we'll certainly come back to that a little bit later because that, that plays in the uh the plot of the movie for sure. Yes, we agreed. So she did say when he said to when uh, Palmer Joss says, uh, how can I get in touch with you? She says, Leave me your number. Right. So it's basically don't call me, I'll call you sort of thing. And as Russ said, he, she, he, she leaves his number in the uh, hotel. After she left, uh, I mean, she went out of the door. She started to remember how the, how did her father uh, uh, die? And I think that explains. Yes. This explains how does this feel so tough for her building relationship and how overwhelming and she does not want to go through the same pain again yes, yes. and she and and the other thing i i sometimes pointed this to people who are trying to romance a five i said study what he does he does everything wrong <laughs> <laughs> he's too quick he's too insistent he's too mushy he's just after her and she just you know, yes. Yes. I think fives and sevens both win the prize for flightiness when people are trying to make claims. And yes. so, so uh, you yes. know, and he, had he gone a little slower, she might have made another decision. But she just she was overwhelmed by him. I like I like Mario yes. the metaphor yeah, that you make with the squirrels. 
the five and the squares. Yes. Can, can you tell us about this metaphor? Yes. Well, yeah, it, it's, you know, if, if you want to pet a squirrel, you can't chase it, right? I mean, you have to, you know, hold out the bread or the nut or whatever and slowly, slowly, slowly let it inch toward you. So, uh, or, or else it'll flee. I think the other thing that happened there was he asked her about her father. Yeah. And that's what made her say, oh, look at the time. I have to go. And, you know, and then she had the flashback, I believe, to him dying. Yeah, he said, he said, must be hard being alone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And avarice there, too. This is a great example of avarice. As I've said many times, avarice is not withholding knowledge and information, as the old cliche is. You know, she would have given you, if you were interested in radio astronomy, she'd have talked your ears yes. off. If you wanted to yes. talk about SETI, there was no end to her download. It's withholding information and knowledge about me. She, As soon as he was probing into knowing her on a deeper level, whoop, walls came up. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Just a couple other quick points before we move to New Mexico. The, the um, you know, she was, to your point, Russ, telling him about the stars. Yeah. Right. Before they end up. Quite happily. <laughs> yes. She was she was having a good old time. Yeah. And then he says the same exact thing to her that her father said uh, about, you know, if they're not people up there, it'd be a real waste of space. Right. Yes. And, and then she was, you know, oh, ka-ching, right. He's in. Okay. Um, and so uh, uh, again, the other time she, uh, you know, became renewed in her interest in him was when Tom Skerritt referred to him as father Palmer. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which I thought was interesting. So again, a lot of father daughter things going, going on there. Anyway, funding gets cut in Puerto Rico. They head off to New Mexico. Yes. To the, um, shoot, what do the they VLA. call that? The VLA. Very VLA. large array. I've been there. Array. It's an amazing really place. Done? Yeah. I'll bet it's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, which is a bunch of radio telescopes, a whole bunch of them pointed at the stars, right? Yeah, and, and the way in which she gets the funding, it's why, when I think that she looks very eightish and like, or yes. tried to make it happen yes. in a very kind of forceful way, but not uh, that grounded as I yes. need to be. She's she's appearing in front of this group of people who she is seeking investing from. And um, when they I forget exactly what the one guy says that sets her off, but she really just lets them know they're a bunch of idiots. Right. And uh, this is when she gets the attention of S.R. Haddon played by the great John Hurt, yes. um, you know, who uh, I would I would watch in anything. So um, they get the funding, and then she is out one night listening and starts to hear what sounds like a signal, right? And this is where she gets very excited, goes rushing back to where the other scientists are, and they realize that someone is broadcasting beats in prime number sequences, right? Yeah. Two, three, five, seven, eleven, thirteen, etc. Okay, and this is the signal. And she talks about mathematics being the language. So this is an interesting piece of conversation to me about the nature of communication and the reliability of communication. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, we don't have a lot of examples of talking with extraterrestrials, but you know, <laughs> in terms of, we can say that it, in terms of human societies, that mathematics. Geometry and mathematics tend to be universal languages. For example, you know, when I bring folks to Egypt and we're looking at the ancient temples, 
we don't necessarily understand everything or even how to, we can read the hieroglyphics, but we don't know what they mean exactly. However, a lot of the principles of the temples are encoded in the geometry and the mathematics of the temple, which are everywhere once you start to look. Of course, a lot of Egyptologists aren't trained to look at things that way, but they're there for anyone who cares to check it. There is a way of conveying some kind of understanding through mathematics that doesn't depend on language. And indeed, when we sent, Carl Sagan was part of this, when we sent out our voyagers into deep space and and put that little plaque the on them, record. the golden oh, okay, plaque, yeah. yeah, to sort of, should any extraterrestrial civilization find this and retrieve it, the message was in pictures and mathematics. They did what the chant, they probably don't speak English or Spanish or Arabic or anything. So that's going to be, they may not even have vocal vocalization in any way we would recognize. I love the movie Arrival showed yes. that the extraterrestrials yes. communicated not in any audible signal. Right. Yeah. A very good movie that uh, uh, is worth watching if you have not seen it. Arrival. So, yeah. So it, it, it also speaks to the nature of knowledge, right? You know, I think in a bit we want to talk about this, but, uh, you know, there are different ways of knowing things, right? right? And there are different degrees of certainty that we can have, right? Any scientist will tell you that science is provisional, right? It's our best belief, our best understanding until we get more data. And when new data comes in, we might change our mind and we might start, you know, changing dates, changing ways, you know, whatever it is, start to understand things differently. And then there are some things that don't fall into the realm of science, like beauty and art and subjective experience that have value and are ways of knowing things, but are subjective. Math is, you know, and geometry is the one thing that is not uh, provisional. You know, a prime number is a prime number. Two plus two equals four, whether you like it or not, right? Um, so <laughs> it, it sets up this conversation of the provisionality of knowledge. Go ahead, Maria, say. I, I, before that happened, they sent a message. They communicated with other kind of observatories or other people in other countries just to make sure that they were yes. not fooling themselves. Exactly. Yes. And that's another way to kind of try to be more objective about stuff, uh, kind of testing your hypothesis, yes. which I really liked. And she even said to the other guy, prove me wrong. Tell me this is not an AWAC plane. Tell me it's not this. And yeah. so they, they yeah. did set that up. Good, Rush. You were going to say something. No, I was just saying, yes, you can really feel the hand of Carl Sagan in some of the, yes. the script. Certainly this part, certainly he would have strongly advocated for mathematics as the universal language. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, there, there's also just the sense to, again, setting up that she already had a lot of good integrity, discipline. There's a way that rationality and integrity kind of work together here. Yes. That, that being honest and not going beyond what you actually know and understand is a discipline. And it, it yes. takes a certain integrity. And you really come to respect for all of her interpersonal shortcomings. You come to really respect uh, Ellie's character in that integrity. And they show that yeah. repeatedly throughout the film. Truth, truth, truth. Right. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. 
We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. I'll say something that might be politically incorrect. Maybe that's why this movie was not so interesting from people for people in the US. Yeah. <laughs> it's because this not I mean, what's interesting about that? Uh, and I'm just generalizing. And <laughs> but, but but because because I was looking at I mean watching the movie and I watched it when it came out but that was just too many years ago but and because I was looking at point 5 it was fascinating to me to see all these details because I care about kind of intellectual integrity and being objective and all of that. I thought that there were so many messages that were fascinating. But if you're not into that, if you don't appreciate that kind of search, then this movie might be uninteresting. I mean, a science fiction movie without necessarily a deeper message. Yeah, and actually in response to uh, what you said, Maria Zain, this scene, the beginning of the scene, and actually in parallel, it was obvious the dynamic with the point seven, the whole lot of excitement about uh, just receiving uh, a pattern, a kind of pattern, and uh, coming up with this overwhelming information, the coordinates, the frequency, the uh, all of that. So it was like, she she was like having a, a complete orgasm about uh, having this <laughs> this uh, discovery or something like that so so i i guess they had maybe maria jose they, they they needed to have this mix in order to make it successful for the american taste so with the objectivity they needed to have this whole lot of excitement as well but it's it's still i mean part of the type 5 uh, dynamics yeah, and, I, and I'll correct myself uh, because it, maybe it's an unfair. It was an unfair statement. I think that the Western kind of world, we might not have appreciated that search for truth as much as the movie was conveying. You know, it's yeah. well, uh, but but I think you're onto something here because w what I was struck by watching the movie is how much these themes are even amplified now, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that, look, distrust of science, yeah. right? I mean, that is a big issue in society yeah. today, okay? Uh, the way people react to threat, okay? Then it was aliens and the potential threat of that. Today it's COVID, right? And what happens in uh, to people when they feel threatened in some way and how they react intellectually, is uh, a, a really important message of this movie, I felt. Yeah, it, it, sometimes the facts will not bring us the message we want right. or the message we fear. And those tend to be yes. the main motivations for a lot of humanity. The yes. other thing I share with you as five geek out kind of 
thing that so take a little uh, dip into my mind and how I watch movies. There was something else I appreciated about the film at this point that they were doing their best to have the science in the film have the quality of integrity of her character. For example, and this and you'd have to really be watching this from from a certain, you know, observation deck. As they're describing the signal at first and realizing it's coming from the star Vega, they say, almost as an aside, but Vega is a young star. It's younger than our star. The chance there'd be an older civilization there doesn't make sense. And, you know, so my little five brain, that little factoid went in. So I said, how are they going to handle that? But they did. Because when she goes on this sort of, hyperspace voyage to Vega turns out it's not where they are. It's just a, it's just a switching station for yes. a network of hyperspace yes. links. Yes. It's like a VPN yeah. link, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> oh man, that's so cool. Yes. They dealt with yes. that. And, uh, yes. and so often in movies, they don't. The, the logical right. inconsistencies can be vast. <laughs> as, yes. And I always notice that. And I say, okay, Russ, this isn't probably aimed at you. <laughs> right. right. And, and also the, the, the whole wormhole idea was very good too, right? It wasn't yeah. this idea of putting people on a spaceship and flying them, you know, six light years, which is about 24 trillion miles. And, you know, you could never really get to. So, yeah, I, I agree. Very well done. And the science was really strong here. So they find the message. Uh, first, it's a just an auditory message of the beats in prime numbers. And then they realize, wait a minute, there's a visual thing here as well uh working at another uh layer and they see the picture and i'm sorry it's the uh, recording of uh hitler uh which of course terrifies all the government uh people here wait a minute they're sending hitler to us this can't be good right um the first thing they see is a swastika a swastika yes (laughs) yes right (laughs) always a bad start you know and it sort of uh sort of uh you know gives credence to stephen hawking's point of view uh, was that we should do whatever we can to avoid extraterrestrials, right? Because the chances of there being a good outcome are, are you know, pretty low. Who's to know, really? But that was his perspective. So, um, and then they start seeing these plans, these schematics that they can't quite figure out until uh, she is summoned by S.R. Haddon again, who is the, uh, I don't know, they don't quite explain he's an industrialist of some sort who uh, at this point is living on an airplane because it is good for him to, how would he say, keep his interests mobile, right? And uh, and uh, there was an interesting comment when she's getting onto the plane where the guy says, you're really lucky. He doesn't land for many people, right? Um, so again, we get a bit of a five-ish theme there in uh, Haddon as well. Okay, so he gives her the key to decoding kind of these a things. Bill they, Gatesian character there. Yes, yes. I was trying to. I had read one time who that character was based on, and I couldn't find it this time. It was based on someone. Her character was based on a scientist. Yeah, as well, a real, a real person. I've seen interviews yes. with her. Yes. So uh, they start building this machine. Okay, that I'm not really sure what it is, what it's supposed to do, uh, but they start to build it. And they are going to have to pick someone to go on this trip. She wants to be the person, but this is where, after she's kind of, this is where she's reunited with Palmer Joss, who is now an advisor to President Clinton, a spiritual advisor. Um, and um, uh, he works against her being the candidate 
to go, and she is competing against her former boss, Drumlin, uh, the Tom Skerritt character. Yeah. Can I add one thing here? Yeah, go ahead. This very five, and uh, something i noticing and up against often, uh, the whole reception of the signal and the uncovering of what it meant was very five-ish. Mm-hmm. Because most people just finding the beats, they say, "Amazing, we got it," and that would have been the end of the search. <laughs> we got mm-hmm. it now. We got we know the enneagram now. Yes, right. We know it. We got it all. We figured it out. It's this. Have a nice day. No, mm-hmm. and then they they saw what appeared to be inner, just noise. It just looked like noise, but there was some kind of peculiar pattern to the noise. And they start looking at it, and then the noise ends up being patterns, and then they discover it's these sheets of a schematic but then they can't figure out how to put it together but at least they found that and again what well it's just one of those things but then our industrialists hadn't with greater resources and the right mindset on his team to find it realizes you're thinking and this is what i'm telling people the enneagram all the time you're thinking two-dimensionally it's actually a a multi-dimensional figure Higher intelligence works with more than one vector at a time. Low intelligence is flat world. Yes. And so entering into this multidimensional thing, it turns out to be the schematic is how to build the spaceship that she goes on. Again, also making a little statement about these apparently just far out ideas are what drive innovation, technology, and everything our civilization is based on. So that was really an important part of the movie. But I, I think it's also a lesson in persistence, staying with the question, not assuming you've got it already, yes. and, and open to new ideas. I used to say having a strong position usually means your head center has stopped working. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, the, um, it's the embrace of uncertainty. Yes, I think that separates good scientists, good thinkers, uh, and it's something that fives tend to have. Yeah, you have your framework, and you couldn't go anywhere without that, but you're willing to use it as a launching pad, this case literally, into unknown territory. There was also, <laughs> you said something uh, earlier that I wanted to uh, also comment on about this idea of integrity, and this is something we always talk about when we talk about fives and organizations, is one of the values they bring is this integrity because they're so matter-of-fact, right, in, in a literal way, right? It's, well, this is what the facts are, and our emotions don't matter. So so I'm going to tell you this, whether you like it or not, right? Which can be a little off-putting at times to people, and we see that in Ellie for sure, right? Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, her style is a little bit abrasive at times. But it's, you know, it's one of the reasons you want fives around, right? To be able to tell you these things. And they do, you know, serve that role so well of the advisor. It's the Merlin, the magician. It's uh, Gandalf, all these sort of characters. Yeah. In another completely different kind of setting, I think of the movie, uh, The Big Short. Mm. Yes, yes. And there was a five said, look, the real estate market is going to have this meltdown and da 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 da, and nobody yes. wanted to listen to the guy. It's not what they want to be true. How yes. it's never done that before, but he just said, okay. And he yes. made himself a billionaire. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Jose, are you going to say something? Yeah, that they want, they tell you the truth or what they think, whether you like it or not, and whether they like it or not. And I think that's yeah. yes. really valuable. Yes. Yeah. That they're not attached to an opinion if they see data that disconfirms it and they're willing to go ahead and say it like 
with uh, when she was asked if she believed in God. Yeah. You know, she was just not able to say that she did, not only because they didn't want to hear it, because they probably wanted to hear that. <laughs> and uh, but she was just not able to articulate it and say yes. something that wasn't true. Yeah, and and going jumping ahead a little bit, I wouldn't say probably if you asked her at the end of the movie, "Do you believe in God?" I think you'd have still got the same answer. She had an experience of something beyond her understanding, but she kind of knew honestly that someone asking her that question was not asking about what she experienced. She was right. asking for a certain concept that she didn't really find to be true. Yeah, and and I think too that's one of the so you you go back to 1997 and this conversation in this direct way about whether there's a god or not is pretty bold, right? I mean, yeah. you know, this is before Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all those guys, you know, the four horsemen came along and uh, so it was it was a very bold conversation. And what I liked about the way she answered those questions is I'm a scientist and I need for a question like that uh, objective data. And I don't have the objective data that shows me that a God exists, right? And, you know, and so this is the, you know, the nature of how she approaches things, which is the right way to do it, right? I can't answer that because I don't have the data. Right. She's not saying, well, no, it's silly to believe there's a God. Of course, there's no God. She's saying, I don't have the data, and so I can't commit to that point of view. So uh, now t the uh, Drumlin is a bit savvier uh, when it comes to this question, right? Because he he, kind he probably of, doesn't he, believe either. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yes, uh, but he's not dumb enough to say so, right? Yeah, I mean, you know. So he is a more politically astute character, and he kind of plays up you know, the importance of God and, and you know, uh, and representing the beliefs of the average American when it comes to these things, right? So, again, real nice distinction between the three and the five um, in, in this. Oh, in yeah, because he, he is plenty smart and a good scientist, yes. too. See, people yes. always, you know, people often underestimate mm -hmm. the intellectual capacities of, of a Really, all of the Enneagram types, exactly. any of the nine types can be a genius. Yes. I actually met Carl Sagan. and I. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, I think he's oh, probably a one. Oh, really? Oh, probably interesting. Probably a one. I don't think oh, he was oh, a five. But he was very fairness and justice and fair play was super important to him. And he was, yeah, actually, he might have also been a three. You know, Don Riso thought he was a three. Mm. actually, that he was wonderful at presenting scientific ideas and yes. languaging them in, in a way that people who weren't necessarily educated in science could follow and appreciate the yes. beauty and the value of the ideas. So that's very plausible too. But I don't think he was a five. No, I, I, I don't either. I mean, he was very astute at not alienating people, right? Yes, I mean, he, he was a very political guy. Yes. But yeah. he would he would step up to the plate for political issues when yes. there was something at stake. Uh, he had his statements about the nuclear proliferation, for example, things yes. like that. Join us next week for part two of our conversation with Russ Hudson about the movie Contact and Enneagram Type 5. We'll also be discussing the importance of critical thinking skills in all aspects of life including our spiritual lives. Look forward to seeing you then.